0: amen you can have a seat great to see everybody this morning y'all it's cold outside goodness it's cold i'm glad to be inside right now um if you have your bibles or you have your phone or tablet or however you're you want to follow along today we are finishing up our study in the letter of colossians and so we're going to look at the last few verses of chapter four and and uh and finish that up and and um What I hope today is just look at a few themes and statements. We're going to look at uh, easily the most personal uh, part of Paul's letter where he mentions people he knows by name. He kind of talks about some things that they've been doing, some encouragements he has, and there's really uh, a few themes that I want to kind of focus on and then kind of wrap it up and remind us like why he wrote this to begin with, Like, like what is the... What's the end goal for Paul for writing this letter? Uh, and I thought it maybe it'd be a good way to, to end it for us today. Um, and just for all in, inquisitive minds, if you see the baptismal pull up, uh, we're going to baptize someone today. Uh, she's sick, so unable to, so it'll be up for a few Sundays. So if you're here today and you're like, it's go time, I need to do that, then we'll figure it out. It might be cold on the way back to your car afterwards, but we can baptize you if you, if you want to do that today. Um, but let's look at, let's look at uh, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18 of Colossians chapter 4. And then, uh, like I said, we're going we're gonna to just try to kind of catch a glimpse and be reminded why Paul wrote the letter. Um, uh, and, and notice just a few themes and focus in really on, on kind of one verse that I think is kind of the hinge point of this last section uh, for us. So uh, Colossians 4, starting in verse 7, going through verse 18. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You can see why some of these names. We still name our kids, but we've dropped some of them. Not a lot of Aristarchuses in preschool with my daughter. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Verse 11, Jesus, who is uh, called justice, also sends greetings. Uh, These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who's one of you and a servant of Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and, and uh, Hierapolis. Our, our dear friend uh, Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church and her home. After this letter has been read to you, see to it that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. And be sure to tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So, so what I want to do is, as we kind of look at it, there's a lot there, right? I mean, there's a lot of names. There's a lot of things happening. But, but I, I really think... To kind of get through and kind of summarize the letter of Colossians and talk about why he wrote it, what's the end goal of Paul writing this letter, I really want to kind of focus on verse 12, where it says that he is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. The first thing is that I love that Paul says that he's wrestling in prayer and he says in verse 13, I can vouch that he is working hard for you and for the other people. And so so if you're in a if you're in time of your life and in your season of following Jesus where where it's hard to commit time to do something, and I don't want you to ever think that like praying is like a second best. Like out of all the out of all the good work that Paul mentions in all of his letters, the only time that he says, I can vouch for you that he's working hard. That happens two times. Once is in First Timothy, the other time is here, and it's specifically about prayer. So that's just a good reminder going into it. If you want more about prayer, you can go back and listen to last week. I talked about it for a long time last week. So you can go listen to it there. But I just, just kind of by way of reminder and encouragement, if, if you... If you all the time and energy and resources, and maybe you're in a season of life where physically you're unable to do hands-on ministry, prayer is not a second best ministry. God hears prayers and he answers prayers. And, it, and, it's, and it's good, hard work to do. So, so that's just kind of by way of reminder. But, but the other thing is, when you, I think when we read verses like verse 12, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature, and fully assured. Some of us can hear the will of God and you just think, I would love to know the will of God. And maybe you're in a season of life where big decisions are coming up. You know, you're, you're getting to the end of like high school or college or, the, or you're, you're trying to make decisions about a career or a spouse. Big decisions, transition life decisions coming up and you think, man, I'd love to know the will of God. And it's interesting that, that he said he's praying for you so that you can stand firm in all the will of God. And so what I, what I want to kind of do is take some time to talk about what is the will of God. Like, can we know the will of God in our lives? And what does that have to do with the letter of Colossians as a whole? Because this is the first time that really Paul's mentioned that. And so as we talk about the will of God, as, as we're talking about kind of why Paul wrote this letter, there's three things I want to, kind of three themes I want to talk about. The first one is holiness. The second one is unity. And the third is mission. So holiness unity, and mission. And so you say, okay, like, like where do we get that from, Matt? We, we've not, the word holy is only used to describe Jesus in this letter so far. What, like, where do we get that idea? I'm going to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 and just read a few verses here to, to kind of talk about, like, what is the will of God? Paul tells it explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3. He says, and this is God's will for you. Your sanctification. The word sanctification, it it, it could also be translated, and and if you have an ESV Bible, maybe there's a little footnote at the bottom, it it might even say, and this is God's will for you, your holiness. Your, Your holiness. And he says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and in that matter, there's that no, one should right, or no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And then he goes on to say that, that God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Okay, so already when we start using words like holiness and we say be holy and things like that, that can carry baggage for us that we maybe bring into that. Like, like maybe you grew up in a, in, a, in a church culture or a religious culture where the word holy was used to justify being self-righteous and legalistic. Or maybe it was used to use shame as a motivator to try to make you do the right things, but actually there was no change of the heart concerned. Like may, The word holiness language can, can come where maybe you're here today and you've experienced a lot of hurt from other followers of Jesus because they've weaponized that kind of language and that word against you. Or maybe the idea of being holy or, 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 or being someone that is known as, as being holy is like something that seems really unattainable. And you've come across verses in the Bible like, you should be holy because I am holy. And you're just like, well, that confirms all my suspicions that Christianity is, is impossible. And following Jesus perfectly is impossible. Maybe it's something, like maybe as I'm describing that, you're sitting there thinking, man, thank God I'm not like those sinners because I am holy. And words like holy and holiness has led you to feel smug and self-righteous because you know I've checked enough boxes to where no one can hold anything against me. And I can judge other people when their lives are falling apart because they just haven't lived up to a standard. But holiness, the beautiful part of it, and I hope this frees you up today, holiness is something that is given and not achieved. It's something that has been given to us, and then we get to live out of that reality. It's not something that we can attain on our own. So the the word holy itself carries like a few different ideas with it. The, The first one is that it means weight or weightiness. Like in the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word for holy means like heavy. So it's like the idea of like a dignitary walking into a room and they they carry a lot of weight or clout with them, right? So like maybe you felt this if you've entered a holy space before, like the Wednesday morning prayer time coming into this room when it's empty and there's just a few people praying and Christy's playing old hymns on the piano. It's like, man, this feels like a whole, like it's weighty. I can remember being in high school and had the chance to go over to Europe and walked into like a huge cathedral that's like older than the entire United States, right? And walking in in, in Munich and feeling like, man, there's something, like this is a holy space. It feels like there's a weight, like I'm walking into a story that's been going on for years. Uh, saying holy could also mean that, um, it, it can mean weight. It also means something like totally different. Like it means separate, something wholly different, like W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly different than we are. And so, so when, when they describe God as holy, you know, you, you are the holy God. That means that he is completely different than any of the, the other deities that people worship, the idols and things like that. But then holy can also mean purity. It means something that there's no fault, there's no blemish, there's nothing wrong with it. And so that when we say that God is holy, when we're singing holy, 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 when we're joining into that song that Revelation tells us the angels have been singing around the throne of God forever and will continue to sing, we're saying that he is a God that carries more weight than anything else. It means that he is like, like totally separate and different than us, and he's pure, and he's good, and that there's no fault in him, there's no wrong in him. And so in the Old Testament when we read things like God is holy, it made it different because for them it was a very real thing. Like, man, God just destroyed and like conquered all of the gods of Egypt when he set them free. Like, God, you are different and you are stronger and holier than you do that. And so so when God chose the Hebrew people, when he chose the Israelites, he said, hey, I'm going to make you holy as I am holy and you're going to be called by my name. And so when we enter that story now through faith in Jesus, it means that, that God has chosen a people to take his character and holiness into the world so that people will see how he's different, so people will see how he's separate from how other people do things and how other peoples live. And are we, are we perfect at that? And all God's people said, no, we are not perfect at that, y'all. We are not perfect at that. But with his help, we can try. We can try to live into that character that he's giving us to be renewed in the image of Jesus. Okay, what does this have to do with the, the letter of Colossians? In the Old Testament, holiness was achieved by doing. Okay, so God called the people. God, God gave them his name. He said, hey, I will be your, I will be your God and you will be my people You will carry my name. You're going to go and become a nation, and then you're going to bless the whole world through what I'm going to give you. Okay, that's how it worked. Now, holiness, instead of being achieved by what we do, it's received by what Jesus has done. See, every day, day in and day out, year after year, the priests would have to consecrate themselves. That word means they would make themselves holy by going through these rites and rituals that God gave them, and then they would go and make sacrifices to pay the penalty for sin, for, for basically humans making a mess of God's good world that he gave us to take care of. They would do that, but then when Jesus came, once and for all, as, as at the same time, the ultimate high priest and the ultimate sacrifice, he came and he lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross for our sins, so that anyone who comes to him Anyone who comes and says, Jesus, I believe that you paid the price for my sins. I believe that only you can make me holy through the washing of your blood, and I can live a new life in that holiness because of your resurrection. Th- then Jesus says, You are now holy as I am holy. And so, so what happens is when, when we become a part of God's family, we become the people called by his name, the way that we live a life. A life of weight, where in in 1 Corinthians Paul says that that when we walk around because we have God's Holy Spirit living in us, we have the aroma of Christ. That's temple language for the sacrifices being made. Right? We, we live that kind of weight where it's a little different. Right, We live a life of separation where we don't, we don't take in and we don't, we don't, like like he said in First Thessalonians 4, where we don't live the same way the world who doesn't know God lives. And that's no judgment or shame on them, but that's just caution for us to know that we're called to be holy, that we're called to live a life that's, that's a little different and separate than the world around us. And it means a life of purity, a life where we, where we know we can and we have, made pure because of what Jesus has done for us. And so now, when we, when we realize that, we get to then live into that life. We learn to say no to things so that we can say yes to Jesus. We learn to say no to that because we know that, that God's very much like in the Old Testament, where God's reputation was at stake based on how his people lived, that's how we live. God's reputation is, 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 is staked on how we live. And let me just say, I was kind of preparing this morning and, and praying for us this morning. Uh, for some of us, it, it's hard to hear these things and to feel like it's possible for us to be good enough. Like, like, it's hard for us to feel like we can be accepted based on what someone else has done. Whether it be Jesus or, or anyone else, Right? Like, it can be hard for us to believe that everything we've ever done that's, that is wrong or sinful or hurt other people has, can be forgiven based on what Jesus has done. And, and maybe you're hearing this language you say, Matt, I, I want to feel forgiven. My head knows the, the formula, not that it's actually a formula, but I, but I know that if I If I pray and I ask Jesus to forgive me, that he forgives me. I know that in my head, but I feel dirty and I feel broken. As someone who also struggles with that, can I I share something with you that I have learned to do to accept the forgiveness of Jesus? Is when those feelings and thoughts of inadequacy and hurt come with, I've had to learn to pray instead of, instead of, Make me feel this. I've had to respond with thank you for doing that. May Jesus thank you for giving me grace that is sufficient. Thank you for making your power perfect in my weakness. Thank you for for Jesus giving me your life. That I have died to that life of sin. And you have raised. Thank you for raising me to a new life. I don't feel it. I, I believe it in my head. But I don't believe it in my heart. But thank you for doing that anyways. Because it's, it's for us who follow Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 2 a little bit earlier that our whole self, which was ruled by the flesh, that word flesh just basically means any part of us that we haven't given to Jesus to cleanse yet, that we're trying to hold on to ourselves. Any part of the flesh that was ruled by it was put away and raised in, uh, to life in and with Jesus so when he says, like, I'm praying for you to, to be mature, fully assured, to, to stand firm in the will of God, what it means is that it's us realizing that all the beautiful things that Paul has said in Colossians is totally true. And now we respond by living as if it's true. And sometimes, sometimes, this is going to sound bad, sometimes you've got to fake it till you make it. That's what it is. It's Jesus, I'm having a hard time. It's that man who said, Jesus, I know you can heal my son, but I believe, but help my unbelief. Man, Jesus, thank you for making this true. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing that. Right? We don't have to work for our holiness, but we do live into it. We consecrate ourselves. That's joining God in his work of making us holy. That's where maybe you've heard the word like sanctification being like a process Part of that's true, sanctification happened by what Jesus did, but then we grow in that process of sanctification as we join Jesus in the work of being transformed into his image day in and day out. And you may sound like, Matt, that sounds like talking about doing, and, but you're also talking about grace and stuff like that. I love this quote from Dallas Willard. I memorized it. It's simple to do, simple to memorize. Let, he says, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. See, Jesus doesn't want us to try to earn our salvation or our holiness, but he does want us to join him in his work where we lovingly give things up so that we can say yes to him. So as I was kind of preparing for today, thinking, there was a a verse this week that that kind of hit me from from Hosea. So in in the time of Hosea, he was a prophet in Israel is a time of, of deep spiritual decline, and he, and he came with a message. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy story if you haven't read it before. Like some of the wildest sermon illustrations you could ever imagine. Like, like just go read it for yourself. But, but here's, what he, here's what he said. And in, in, uh, here's what God said to his people in Hosea 10 verse 12. It says, sow righteousness for yourself. So there's, a, there's an active part of sowing righteousness into your life. It says, sow righteousness for yourselves and you'll reap the fruit of unfailing love. And this is like great old-school revivalist language right here. I've got the NIV, and it says, break up your unplowed ground. If you have like the ESV or something like that, it'll say like, break up your fallow ground. Anybody have that one? Anybody have, have the ESV or something like that? Fallow ground is just like, I just like imagine like an Irish revivalist preacher saying that in the back of my mind. I went to Bible college, so while everybody was doing fun stuff, I was watching videos of like Scottish preachers with the last the Mohican soundtrack in the background. <laughs> that was my pump up language, you know, my pump up videos for stuff. But that fallow ground, he says, for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. So think of that like that unplowed ground of your heart, that fallow ground of your life. When, when, when we bought the house we live in, um, there, the backyard was virtually non-existent. Uh, no one had lived in the house for a while, and the folks who lived in there before were, were uh, not physically able to do like a lot of yard work. And so basically our whole backyard had become just a giant rhododendron thicket. And I remember when we, when we bought the house, I looked, and, and what I thought was, man, there is so much potential in this backyard, but it's going to take some hard work of digging and uprooting. And so we bought the house at the end of 2019. So, so COVID hit and every day my stress relief was, I'd get an ax and a shovel and I would just go outside and I would just take the yard back. Like I just went out and I was just like cutting rhododendron and I would do it and, and, and that half acre of unusable yard turned into a full half acre of backyard. And it was unfallowed ground. As I read that today and I was thinking about holiness and where it is, it's like, it's like God telling his people, hey, if you feel like you're in spiritual decline right now, sow for yourself righteousness in your life so that you'll reap that fruit of unfailing love, that, that fruit of God seeing you and saying, no, no, I love you. But you gotta do the work to be able to hear God's voice say that. Hey, break up the fallow ground. Like what area of your life is there potential seek the Lord, but you're you're devoting it to something else. There there are some studies done, and and, and somebody said if you spent 20 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day for one year, working really hard at one thing, by the end of a year, you'll be a master at it. Think about that. How many hours is that? What if, what if, what if you decided not to binge that new series that came out, but devoted yourselves to seeking the Lord? Like, what would that look like if if we became masters of prayer at Fellowship Asheville? Like, what would it look like if 20 minutes a day you memorized scriptures so that you could pray those verses back to God? Last week I shared some stats 5.3 hours a day the average American ages 15 and up spent doing like leisure hangout time. 5.3 hours. About three of those hours were spent streaming or watching some kind of content. That means we are devoting ourselves to become masters of turning our brains off and letting people with an algorithm tell us what to think and how to live our lives. What if that's unplowed ground to sow righteousness and seek the Lord so that when showers of righteousness come from heaven, there's seed in our heart that's ready to spring up into fruit of steadfast love. See, devoting ourselves to holiness, that's what, that's what Paul's calling them to. When he says, I'm praying that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. That comes by us joining Jesus in his work of making us new. He's doing it. He'll hold up his end of the bargain. I promise. He will hold up his end of the bargain. It's our job to join him in that. So where's that potential in your life that God can use but you're not sure if you're ready to do the hard work of tilling. You're not ready to grab the shovel and get to work. maybe you feel like you, you need your anxiety in order to get stuff done or to make the people do the things around you you want them to do, right? AKA control stuff, which is the great illusion of human existence. Like maybe you feel like if you trusted God, he would fail you. Are you afraid to admit that secret sin that you haven't confessed to anyone else because of how they may react? Can I tell you one of the scariest things I've ever done in my whole life? A few years ago, there's a group uh, of friends uh, that we were looking at everything and, and finding out just like over and over, like just seemed like pastors that had been doing pastoral ministry for years were just having all of these fallouts and and. Things were coming out about him, and, th- and there was all this, like, hidden sin, whatever. And so we made a deal. We're all about the same age, all about the same kind of stage in life and, and, tr- and pastoral ministry. And we said, hey, let's, let's talk every week, but then let's meet together every six months and just confess all of our sin. So the first time we met it was me, a few other guys, and we just started out with, what's the worst thing you've ever done? Like, seriously, what is the worst thing you've ever done? And that was terrifying. That was terrifying. Satan threw the pastor's phone. Come on, Fred. That was payback for Abigail running during the Christmas Eve service. But it was, but it was, it was that moment of wondering, okay, I can decide right now. There is, there is fallow ground in my heart that I have let things take root that I need to get out. But if I tell them what's gonna happen now, and they responded with grace and with love, and, and we're about to have our sixth meeting in March, every six months we meet, and, do, and it's been the most freeing thing. It's been one of the like, biggest fire starters in my walk with Jesus in my spiritual life ever. And, and if you want a situation like that like there are people here who would who would love to to meet with you and pray with you and do that kind of stuff but but listen the 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 point of that is if we want to know how to live a holy life that was separate carries the weight of God that we're pure in this age he said it says control your desires and devote yourself to God It's that that word consecrate yourselves, devote yourselves to Jesus. My prayer for us is that we can stand firm, which that word means honest and confident, in God's will, which is our holiness, mature, which means like Jesus and fully assured, free from fear or shame in our walk with Jesus. That's my prayer for us. That was Paul's prayer and Epaphras' prayer for that church in Colossians. And I think it's true for us today. So, so that that's why he wrote it, it was, it was to remind them of their holiness, to call them into that holiness, to call them into maturity. The second thing is, is unity, unity. So, so I love all the different names, all the different backgrounds, culturally, religiously, ethnically, that would have been in this church. I mean, you have people that are Jewish, Gentile, folks that are uh, Onesimus, we know from from other letters that that he was like involved in like like a weird kind of runaway slave situation, which slavery was different then. I talked about that a few weeks ago too. You're more than welcome to go back and check that out. But most are Greek or Romans, but then Paul mentions a few Jewish names. But there's a few phrases that stuck out specifically about unity that I wanted to kind of, that I wanted to mention. One of them is that he talks about um, Tychicus and it says that he, I'm sending him so that he may encourage your hearts. So let me say this thinking about different cultural, ethnic, religious backgrounds and stuff, more than likely, uh, the Greek and Romans grew up going to, like, like, we, like, we know the names of, like, Greek and Roman mythology gods. They were going to that temple. They were sacrificing things to those, those idols and those deities and stuff like that. But do you know what level of okay you have to be with someone to let them encourage your heart? Like, like think about the most annoying person in your life right now? All right? How quickly did that take you to picture their face? The most annoying, whatever that means for you right now, the most annoying human in your life right now, and what if they came to you and were like, hey, uh, Pastor Fred sent me because I have a message to encourage your heart. How long would it take you before you were able to receive that message? Okay, like it takes a level, a certain level of excitement to see someone for them to be able to tell you something and let it sink into your soul, right? Like, like what if, for all of our Swifties out there, Taylor Swift came up and was like, hey, God sent me with a message to encourage your heart. And you're like, girl, you've already given us so many albums. Like, you already have done that. You've already done it. But for real, like, how easy, on a scale from one to ten, ten being the easiest, one being the lowest, how, what level of excitement would you be and how easily would you receive that message from her? Ten, nine, point seven, somewhere. Now imagine that most annoying person ever in your life coming up to you and saying the exact same thing. Hey, God, hey, uh, God sent me a message to, to share with you today to encourage your heart. See, it's, it's, it's not always like that. See, because we live in a life with, with drama, either with someone or maybe you're dra- wrapped up in drama, we don't know, whatever. And, and they, he was no, like, stranger to that either, right? Like, verse 10, it says, like, my, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. If you've read Acts, uh, Paul and Mark had a falling out. They had some drama, and they ended up, like, like splitting off on doing ministry work together, and Mark and Barnabas went somewhere else, and Paul, Paul went this way. But he says, hey, you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Like, imagine, like, you don't have beef with somebody, but your best friend does. And now that person's coming to you, and it's like, hey, just, just welcome him. Just welcome him back. But I love Paul made up, and they forgave. Which, remember, forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom of grace. And now Paul's telling them to welcome him. And it just kind of wonder, too, how many times does someone need to say sorry before you'll start being kind to them? Like how many times does someone need to ask before you'll actually forgive them? Because remember, it only takes one person to forgive. Ideally, it would be both, but it only takes one person to forgive, and that's you. And we don't, you don't have to be best friends with everybody you go to church with, but we do at least need to forgive with Jesus as the standard of forgiveness. When we are refusing to forgive someone, we are expecting to receive more than Jesus got. Because Jesus said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing as he was hanging on the cross. John 13, 35 said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice that it isn't uniformity, but it's unity in love. Love is not just like a feeling you have for one another an actual act of sacrifice that you choose to do by putting others ahead of yourselves. Paul, d- Jesus doesn't expect us to all look alike. That's impossible. We know that by church history and just the scope of the global church of Jesus at large. There's no way we're all going to look or think exactly alike, and that's a beautiful thing. But we do have to love one another. And, like, Paul took unity super seriously. Okay, uh, so there's the passage in 1 Corinthians Eleven, where he's talking about taking, like, doing the Lord's supper, and back then it looked different than it does now. It would be them gathering at a church house, like Nympha's house that he just mentioned in Colossians. You'd show up, and you would eat like a full meal together. And and in Colossians and in First Corinthians eleven, um, he he's, he's angry at them, and he's like talking to them, and he's correcting them because they're getting together and they're not unified. Like the rich people are eating first, and they make the poor people eat second, and they're kind of creating class systems within the family of, of Christ. And he actually says, so then, because of that, not, not be, like sometimes I've heard this verse read like because it's like, hey, if you have any sin, you better go ahead and confess it, or else it's going to get bad for you if you take communion. But that's actually not it. It was actually about unity. It wasn't about like personal sin and personal holiness in that sense. He said, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, meaning you've created disunity in kind of a class system and who's in and who's out based on socioeconomic things and religious and ethnic things. As if you drink in an unworthy manner, we'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And then he goes on to say that, hey, some of y'all have even gotten sick and died because you've been doing this. And it wasn't because God's heavy-handed and he, and he hates people, but it's because he takes his mission really seriously. Like, he takes his mission very seriously, and that's, that's why he goes on to say in that 1 Corinthians 11, so then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Man, talk about countercultural living, a life of holiness and separate from the culture around you. Like, you walk into a, into a, a church home, okay, so like, for Colossians, to kind of set the scene a little bit, tell the story, it would have been like it talked about to Nympha in the church in her house. So, so Nympha, more than likely, uh, there's this great book that this guy wrote all about Nympha. He does a very nerdy Bible deep dive. It's, it's very cool. But Nympha basically was probably a prominent businesswoman who had a house large enough to host a church. And so it would have been unthinkable in that day for someone to lead a church not, that was not in their house. So more than likely, Nympha was the church leader pastoring this church that met in her home. They would show up to eat. And so, so just imagine you're, you're, you grew up a first century Jew, okay? So, so Herod built this big temple. You spend time with your family. Uh, you know, you're going to, the, to the, you know, the festivals. You go and make sacrifices, you know, all this stuff happening. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing these people that go to your neighbor's house. So Nipha, this prominent businesswoman who's like traded purple cloth or something that prominent people did back then to make money. Um, and all of a sudden, she's like, walking down the street, talking with her servants. And you're like, what is, she's not supposed to do that. Like they're her property. Why is she doing that? And then next thing you know, you actually see like, like they're out at the market buying food together and her, her servants are Jewish, but they're like buying the same food and touching the same stuff. And you're like, wait a minute, this is not okay. Like this is something different. And then, and then she eventually she she meets with you, and you ask her like, "Hey, Nymph, why are you doing that?" She's like, "Well, there's this guy, his name Jesus, from Nazareth. He was a Jewish rabbi, and and he he was crucified, handed over by his own people, crucified. But then he rose from the grave, and we know it happened because he appeared to like like hundreds of people afterwards, like like over five hundred people. And man, when I started following the teachings of Jesus, they told me about, and I believed that, like things just started changing." And, and why don't you just come over to dinner sometime? Come over. We're going to pray a few prayers. Somebody's going to stand up and read some scripture. We just got this letter from a guy named Paul who, like, used to kill these people, but now he's one of them. And, like, he's got a crazy – just come over. We'll talk about it a little bit and eat dinner with us. And you show up, and at the table, there's this big table, and everyone's eating together, Jewish, Gentile, slave, master, children, parent, like like – like in that culture, it was the people at the table were the wealthiest and the most prominent and the ones who had the most money and had the highest place in society. Everybody else would eat on the floor around the table, sit on the edge of the room, but they're all at the same table. And and Paul and, and it's like, wait, y'all got into a fight in public and now you're together and you forgave each other? And you're not like trying to get each other thrown in prison so you can take each other's house and money? It's like, no, that's not how it works anymore. Man, all of the wrongs I did, Jesus forgave, and now I can forgive other people. Like Paul even took the mission of the gospel so seriously that he went to Peter because Peter was basically saying, hey, God made all things clean, and, and there's no difference in, in, in Jew or Gentile or anything anymore. But then he goes back on his word, and he refuses to eat with Gentiles. He's only with Jews, and Paul gave him the business in public. Like, he says, like, hey, I opposed him to his face, which in that culture is like, yo, that is, that's crazy. Like, it would have made TikTok for sure. But, but, but think about, like, losing a friend because they got snobby. And I'm talking about losing a friend, like, you just stop responding to them, but you go up to him and you're like, hey, you are representing the reputation of Jesus. And when you're refusing to eat with other people and you're causing disunity in the body of Jesus— you are basically saying that Jesus' sacrifice was worth nothing. Like that was the unity Paul was after. And Paul takes holiness and he takes unity so seriously because of our mission, because of the mission that we have. I'm not talking about mission like going on a mission trip or, or, or mission, like just going out and sharing the gospel. Those are all important and good things. But, but I'm talking about joining God in his mission. Chris Wright in his book called The Mission of God says this. Fundamentally, our mission, if it's biblically informed and, and validated, means that it's our commitment as God's people at God's invitation and command to join him in his own mission within the world for the redemption of his creation. Our mission flows from and participates in God's own mission. Do you remember what Jesus said he came to do? It was to seek and save those that are lost. See, it can be easy for us to look at a book like Colossians and think it's like, just kind of like a theological treaty or like a theology book or a book just full of doctrine. And we learn a lot of that stuff out of it, but this was a letter written to a group of people at a certain time for a specific purpose. And it was because, yes, Paul didn't want them to fall into false teaching, but more than anything, he wanted them to take the mission seriously. Uh, Some of the phrases throughout the letter that shows us how we're supposed to live out this mission of redemption, Paul said this in in chapter 1, We continually ask you, uh, ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the understanding the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in his knowledge. And then in chapter two, he says, so then just as you have received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. It's an outward, external thing that we're doing. We're joining God in his work of making all things new and redeeming the world. And so if, if the word mission, like you're like, man, that sounds a little like I've got too many categories for that or something. You can rephrase it like this. There is a story that God has been writing since the beginning of the world. And it's a story full of ups and downs. And it's a story full of heartache and brokenness. But at the same time, it's a story of the author entering it himself to make all of the wrong things right. And we get to play a part in that story and bring the people around us into it as well. Because for Paul, the idea of mission as a Jew would have been God spreading his fame and glory among the whole world through his people. That's why he said, you will be my people and I will be your God and you will be called by my name. Like I said earlier, the the idea of holiness in itself is not something individually that we attain and, and hold on to, but it's something that we become for the good of the world around us. The point of the letter of Colossians is not just so we can know and believe the right stuff, but it's to live a life worthy of Jesus, to live a life worthy of God and the calling to be his people. It's because Paul took living out the mission of Jesus so seriously. The mission of Jesus was to establish and see, realize the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, to heal all the brokenness that we've seen happen and taken part in and to make all wrong things right through his sacrificial death on the cross his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven and promised return we join in that kingdom to take up the mission of redemption alongside jesus so as we as we close today just want to kind of ask and return to a few questions is there an area of your life that's unplowed ground Where God is calling you, maybe it's confessing something. Maybe it's just making a commitment of, hey, I'm not going to turn the TV on or have any screens on after this time every night. Or it's, I'm not going to pick up my phone until 9 a.m. so that I can pray. Or maybe it's, hey, I'm going to just cancel Netflix. I'm just going to do it, and the money that I make, I'm going to sponsor a starving kid in another country. I don't know, whatever, maybe God's calling, there's an unplowed area in your life that Jesus is asking you to sow seeds of righteousness for him. Or when it comes to unity, is there something or someone that you need to forgive because maybe God is trying to bless and encourage your heart through them. And based on the forgiveness that we've received through what Jesus has done and offers us, we can ask for his help to do that. Or maybe it's mission. Is there, is, there, is there an area in your life that you feel like you're supposed to take up the mission of Jesus to join? Maybe it's as simple as inviting your neighbors over for dinner and just loving them. Like it's a hard week, but you're going to choose instead of, of turning on the ball game to invite some folks over and just love them. And that's it. Maybe it's that mission. Whatever it is. But here, here's what we're going to do. I've said a lot of words Today. And we're going to take a a few moments to respond in in quiet prayer and just kind of ask Jesus, Jesus, what are you you saying to me today? So so just like a minute or two of silent prayer, listening to Jesus. And then what we're going to do, we're going to stand up and we're going to pray a prayer of confession together. we prayed it together before. We'll stand up, we'll pray a prayer of confession together. And then AJ's going to come up and lead us through, oh, come to the altar. This is an audible. So Beth, we'll sing, oh, come to the altar after the prayer of confession. Great, all right, so let's take a minute. Let's take a minute and and see what Jesus is telling us. Hey, why don't we stand together, and we're going to say a prayer of confession together. And um, as we pray this prayer, I just want to uh, encourage us, and we go into the song. Uh, throughout the scriptures, altars were places where we, where, where we as God's people take sacrifice. We, we take things to die so that in, in exchange we can receive God's life. And so, um, if, if physically it, it helps you to do that, uh, when we're singing this song, um, oh, come to the altar, uh, feel free if you grew up in a, in a church culture uh, where coming to the altar and getting down was a way for you to symbolize confessing things to God, giving them to him so that you receive his life, feel free to do that. I know it's it 's easier in a church with that 's a dark lit room where you can 't see other people, uh, but feel free to do that. We also have some folks in the back, our prayer team who'd love to. Who'd love to pray for you? Uh, I myself would. If there's something that you feel like you need prayer for, want prayer for, um, I'd love. To, I'll turn my microphone off, and I'd love to pray with you. Or one of some of our elders are, are in the room today. We, I know we'd all love to pray for you, but uh, let, let's con, let's say this prayer of confession together, and then we'll we'll sing in, in worship. Most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I'm truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen.